Hi there. Thanks for joining us and welcome. We'll be in conjunction with Center Yoga on New Year's Eve, returning to our Dharma Punks New Year's Eve event and a wonderful experience over the years. Uh, we did it, of course, annually up until the pandemic. And it's so nice that we have found a space that uh, not only will allow us to do our monthly gatherings, but will also allow us to return to this sober Buddhist gathering. There'll be um, there'll be meditation, a Dharma talk, then the intention setting ceremony, time for questions as well, time for connecting with others. And so I'm hoping you'll join us. And as usual, everything, we keep the prices really as minimal as we can. I think the whole thing will be like $20 for the two hours, and that's to pay for the use of the space. So I hope you'll consider joining us for a sober Buddhist New Year's Eve in New York, 23rd Street. And if you'd like to support my work, which is entirely supported by donation only, both the Buddhist psychotherapy and the teaching the Venmo's Dharma Punks with an XNYC. And there's a PayPal on the website, dharmapunksnyc.com, as well as a Patreon. So that's about it. Thanks for listening. And I hope uh, if you're around, you'll join us on New Year's Eve. What I'm going to be talking about tonight is uh, specifically how couples or partnerships or friendships or relationships between family members can thrive, even during times of stress. A lot of my work in Buddhist pastoral counseling is not only with individuals, but once in a while I get cajoled into meeting with couples. And over the years, I've developed some experience helping couples develop resilience in their relationship. And also, um, tonight's talk will also, as usual, be employing some of the insights by important figures in contemporary therapeutic modalities such as Sue Johnson's emotions focused therapy, Imago, and of course uh, Gottman's and Stan Tatkin's clinical insights. So existential threats occur all the time, not just the economic downturn of 2008, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, the tyranny of the January 6 events, and especially most recently the, the pandemic, where suddenly we walk outside and everyone is masked, avoiding us, looking at us as a threat. Um... But, of course, existential threats occur also in our social lives. People we depend on can get sick, can become emotionally unavailable. Threats can happen internally. We can have unresolved wounds from earlier years go off in us like landmines, leaving us with anxiety, depression, uh, addictive, compulsive behaviors. There always will be existential threats 
even when our world is safe, human brains are by nature anxious socially, interpersonally. We are hypervigilant for threats and give us enough time, we'll find one. So when we're in a state of crisis or we feel uh, endangered, we can make very rash decisions. During the pandemic, people suddenly found themselves acting on very strong withdrawal impulses. Some of us emotionally dysregulated impulses. People moved away from their friends and support groups at times, returning to family systems that originally abandoned them. Some people disappeared prematurely into codependent relationships. And for many of us, over the course of the t- the last, uh, I don't know, two and a half plus years, we found our social bonds fraying. And we've seen how many of our friendships, our families, our, our romantic relationships, um, roommate relationships can, under any degree of tension or stress, begin to unravel. So the goal is to develop enduring relationships that are resistant to times of uh, heightened uh, vigilance and unsafe when we don't feel safe. A threat to, in the world, a threat to our relationships, a threat that arises from our unconscious as a form of the return of repressed memories and emotions can lead to as pretty much every psychologist from Freud has noted, to automatic behaviors. Our brains, you see, prefer to stay on autopilot as much as possible. Autopilot is essentially ingrained neural connections stemming from the striatum and subcortical regions. And what they do is they kind of jump uh, they light up and take control of our behaviors, our perceptions, our affect states. And we fall into ingrained routines to survive. And part of these ingrained perceptions and behaviors is that they conserve energy. Uh, they are routines that require literal or no cognition. On the other hand, to stop, pay attention, take in everything that's happening, connect with others, uh, look for new creative solutions, collaborate. That requires a vast amount of neural inhibitions by the frontal lobe. It requires the dorsolateral and, and ventral medial, all these regions of the frontal lobe to light up. Those areas require a vast amount of not only dopamine, um, but also even oxygen, blood flow, and brains don't like to stay in that kind of collaborative, pro-social, pro-relational stance for very long. It's so much easier to let our ingrained perceptions, our emotional beliefs, and our our basic survival instincts, which is... um 
uh, very low cost in glucose. I forgot to mention glucose. Uh, it's so much simpler to stay in my old beliefs and my old survival patterns than to, when I'm under stress, to stop, pause, uh, take in the situation and connect with you and others. So let's look at some of the old ingrained patterns that are, in terms of energy cost, very low. And but at the same time are not very beneficial for us in the long term. Well, there's the victim victimhood stance where uh, people believe that everyone's taking advantage of me, and if I harm others, it's not my fault. It's just the stress I'm under. So you have to put up with me, even if I'm acting um, uh, rigidly even if I'm uh, barking, uh, even if I'm uh, not connecting with you. And that, of course, leads to a second type of ingrained pattern, which is self-reliance is what matters most. The underlying belief to that is other people are too emotional or needy. I'm better off uh, addressing challenges and crises alone. Thank you very much. Being in control is most important. I know what's best for me in times of stress. You need to go along with the plan. And then there are others who, instead of controlling or withdrawing behaviors, are prefer to not only worry, but to get everyone else around them to worry. Worrying keeps us safe. Unless I'm consistently aware of everything that couldn't go wrong, bad things will inevitably happen. It's only through worrying that people feel prepared. And uh, so to, if we slow down and consider options with others, that's that feels dangerous to people who find it uh, worrying as a kind of preparation or a kind of way to respond to threats. And then finally, there's also the disorganized uh, approach, which is it's all too much. And when I'm overwhelmed, the best thing for me to do is to check out and seek the warm embrace of alcohol or drugs or TV or food or shopping or some kind of addictive routine that bombards me with dopamine and helps me overlook and and somehow or allows me to completely check out from the situation. So all of these are clearly maladaptive coping strategies. They're uh, emotional beliefs that lead us away from connecting and and building a relationship that is robust. And they all require less neural energy than connecting for support and checking in with others and considering other people's needs and collaborating. If we don't put ourselves first, if we actually consider other people, that takes, that requires a lot more neural energy, requires a lot more glucose, it requires a lot more neural inhibition. It's, it feels hard to do. And at the beginning, it might not even make us feel safe, but it is the way of building um, reliable 
um, resilient relationships. Another way we maintain old emotional beliefs and we sabotage building um, really uh, um, viable relationships is through what's called repetition compulsion. And that's when we unconsciously choose people who remind us of emotionally unavailable or difficult or uh, disordered individuals from our past. Uh, repetition compulsion is the unconscious need to reenact the wounding situations from our childhood and try to overcome them and master them. But what happens is we will choose people that, that allow us to re rely on our old maladaptive coping strategies. We'll choose people that we don't trust. We'll choose people that are emotionally unavailable. We'll choose people who are, um, who we feel engulfed by and so on and so forth. It's challenging work to make sure from the start that we gravitate to people who actually are emotionally available. We won't feel as excited by them at first because they don't fit our patterns, our experience. Believe it or not, the brain gets excited by people who help us reenact the traumas of our childhood. I'll say that again. The brain very often gets most excited by the people who will um, uh, reenact with us traumatic events from childhood. We don't actually feel that excited by people who are reliable, steady, uh, who show up when they say they're going to show up. Um, we can find them boring at first and so on and so forth. So to build steady, reliable, resilient relationships, we first have to make sure that we're not falling into the pattern of choosing people by those who excite us the most, but don't actually create the conditions where we can actually feel supported to developing new behaviors. So <clears throat> um, if we want to break out of these old automatic behaviors, we have to take the time and old patterns of perception. We have to take the time to see our friends, our partners, even some members of our family for who they really are today, not who they were in the past, not who we think they are, not what we're projecting onto them. This means we have to develop what's called mentalization capacities. And it's interesting, the Buddha talked about this and mindfulness, how important it is not only to mentalize oneself, but other people in our wise spiritual friendships. So this means we have to continually check in, ask how our romantic partners or our friendships or our siblings or our roommates are actually feeling, not assuming we know. It means checking in with their motivations again and again and again, because if we don't show that kind of curiosity and ask, what we'll do is we will project the motivations and feelings from people from our past onto 
the new people in our life. It's only through checking in, through again and again and again, asking what somebody is really feeling, what do they want, how are they perceiving an experience, that we begin to cut through the tendency of projecting old, unreliable people onto people in the present who might very well be reliable. Paying attention again requires a lot of effort. It requires norepinephrine, glucose, dopamine, oxygen, blood flow. It requires engagement of the frontal lobes. It's so much easier to assume I know what your motivations and feelings are. It's much harder for me to put aside my uh, ingrained beliefs and to check in and ask, what are you really feeling right now? What in this situation are you hoping for? But given the fragility of life, there's a real um, point to doing all this work. If we really, really connect with someone, we can regulate each other's emotions, we can help each other reach shared goals and we can achieve together what we couldn't possibly achieve alone and can't achieve in, uh, if we are left to our old maladaptive coping strategies. It's because of having a good partnership that I was able to completely change my life after 9-11 instead of hunkering down or just giving into the tendency of uh, just pushing through life, I actually realized that I needed a authentic change. And with the support of my partner, I was able to, uh, you know, Kathy, I was able to uh, make the change from working in a marketing industry to working as a writer to working and getting empowered as a Buddhist pastor. Um, when we really forge authentic, deep, re resilient relationships, we thrive. We not only actually live longer, but we're far more resistant to the psychological disorders that um, uh, are people who live alone or who don't have at least robust relationships in their life are so prone to. There was just recently in the New York Times an article about uh, what happens to people who live alone for too long without having really deep, resilient uh, relationships with others. And of course, you could look at the work of John Cacioppo, who was pretty much the great clinical authority in that. So no matter how beneficial it is for me to really see you for who you really are, my brain is always going to want to define you, to make you fit into my beliefs, my old perceptions, my old way of doing things so that I don't have to pay attention, so that I can just act on me first impulses. So if I'm going to do this work, my job in a relationship is to offer you what the world doesn't often provide, which is one, to understand you, which we've been talking about. Two is 
a degree of forgiveness, and three is stability and reliability. So let's talk a little bit about forgiveness. Uh, in all relationships, families, friendships, injustices are recorded in our memory modules of our you know, not only engaging our hippocampus and amygdalas, but the right temporal lobe and the left temporal lobe, and then they're rehashed over and over. Human beings are a bit like the uh, dynamics of the Middle East or the Balkans, where injustices are never forgotten. And victimization beliefs it can excuse our worst behaviors. People who have deeply embraced victimization as a way of life, the politics of grudges and resentments. And, and that allows us to carry this sense of injustice into the present and to act in any way we want, not just towards strangers, but even towards the people that we are closest to. We can act harshly with contempt and punishing behavior. So it's crucial to, at the one hand, acknowledge which actions have harmed me and to set boundaries. And with some people I may choose not to be in a relationship with because of how unskillfully they've acted, although I can't really think of anyone I've cut off in my life. But sometimes people do have um, family members or exes who are uh, abusive um, or who just cannot in any way, shape, or form understand or adhere to very basic boundaries. So I understand when some people choose to not be in relationships, but if we are going to be in a relationship with someone, it does require uh, not using the past to excuse punishing behavior, to excuse our own uh, times that we fall short of kindness or uh, um, that the times we check out, withdraw, and don't show up. It's important to be able to acknowledge not only when we've engaged in behaviors that push other people away, but also to um, understand that people's actions do not invariably reflect who they are. Sometimes people act in ways that are wholly inconsistent with their deepest, most treasured beliefs and goals and some of their capabilities. So sometimes we do have to be capable of forgiveness. And I've given tons of talks on forgiveness and boundaries and stuff like that. So I'm not going to go any further. And finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about stability and and reliability in relationships. It is a profound threat to be in a state where one is insecure about whether a relationship will exist or not in the future. It is deeply wounding to another person to use the nuclear option as a bargaining chip to basically say, unless you do X, Y, or Z, I'm out. To threaten you with uh, rejection, disconnection, is <clears throat> to someone like all human beings are social species, and the most painful events 
are emotional rejections, uh, disconnections. Uh, so to do that with someone that we really don't want to uh, disconnect with, but to use it as some kind of bargaining chip is wholly, from my perspective, inexcusable. Uh, it's the first thing that with any couples that I rule out, which is the nuclear option. Um, a boundary, on the other hand, is very different from the nuclear option. A boundary is if you say or do act, uh, do something that has consistently harm me, I will disconnect for a while and I'll return once you and I have had time to reflect. But it's not a threat of ending the relationship. So a boundary is simply a promise to ourselves and to others that if they are acting unskillfully to take time out, but that time out has a very clear uh, limit to it. Um, feelings of love and kindness uh, and empathy are crucial, but they can be fleeting at times when we're facing a crisis or under threat. And so uh, Stan Tatkin, who I mentioned, he's the clinician who developed one of the many psychobiological approaches to couples therapy, like John Gottman and Dan Siegel and so many others. Um, but he's noted in his work, um, which is worth checking out, that having in a, in a friendship, in a couple, in a, a adult and adult parent relationship, a stated set of shared principles or rules as for the relationship, as he calls it, rules for the relationship, those rules can remain consistent over time and we can modify them as need be, but they don't change like our urges and our impulses and our feelings. So it's important to make a agreement on what our vision is for our relationship because it's very challenging to stay together. I've been married for 22, well, together with Kathy for 22 and a half years, I guess 21, 21 years or almost. And uh, uh, it's very challenging to stay together, to, to put the work, to understand each other, to grow with each other. It's all very difficult and shared principles are not things we can make up uh, all the time. We have to dedicate ourselves to our connection. We have to come together as adults and create our own beliefs, our mottos, our ethics, our goals. So one example that uh, Tad can use is, I believe, if I can recall, is uh, to protect each other in public, to not shame each other in front of others. And that's very important. Um, if you're, if I believe you're acting inappropriately and we're in a relationship, I'm going to gently pull you aside, not in front of others, and I'm going to share my perceptions. And then I might even need to set a boundary, but I'm not going to ridicule you, uh, embarrass you, uh, humble you. And if I feel that you've directly harmed someone, I might 
go to them, but I won't do it in public. Um, if one of us feels harmed or abandoned, we commit to addressing the experience. And that's a commitment to being open. One of the hardest things to do, but essential for a resilient, lasting relationship is it's essential to state our needs to each other. Um, people, especially those with anxious attachment, have a tendency to hint at their needs as a way of protecting themselves because they believe if they state their needs out loud that they won't get them and it will remind them of the painful times in childhood where they felt that their needs were neglected. But in adult life, we can't hint at our needs. We can, we cannot be in a re resilient relationship if we are ever assuming that our partner should know what we need. And I keep in the 18 years of counseling again and again and again and again and again, hear how much suffering this belief that I shouldn't have to say what my needs are causes. It is simply one of the most um, self-sabotaging stances to believe that other people should know what I need. Um, so we need to commit to stating aloud our needs, even if we believe we've stated them aloud in the past. We have to keep doing it. So I need to talk to you rather than engage in relation, relational aggression. And there's many kinds of relational aggression. One, of course, is to withdraw when we're disappointed or angry with a partner to stonewall them, as Gottman calls it, to push, to just disappear, to just check out, to just uh, not be willing to talk. But another form of relational aggression is called social sabotage. And that's a form of relational aggression in which I will try to uh, act against you by telling other people outside of our relationship what's going on, but I won't tell you. So what I'm doing is I'm going around and I'm trying to enlist other people in my uh, my side, but I'm not actually taking the time to actually express to you the uh, disappointments or frustrations, or and I'm not giving you a chance time and again to work with me to collaborate and to co be cooperative. Um. As I noted, we have to have a commitment to not relitigating the past. So much work, and any couples therapist will tell, will will state that so much of the work of couples therapy is not only getting people to look at each other and express nonverbal cues, but also to stop litigating the past, to stop bringing in the entire history of, well, you did this, no, but you did that, to the balkanization of relationships. It's a commitment to 
not only the relationship and and the willingness to forgive the willingness to state needs the willingness to set reasonable boundaries that are useful but it's in a, a it's a profound um expectation for both of us that we don't use guilt to influence or persuade each other and uh Lastly, a commitment to a trustworthy relationship is, again, not using the nuclear option. The commitment that right now nobody's going to leave. Nobody's going to leave tomorrow. Nobody's going to go away. We're each going to put the time in to make each other feel important. Um, We're both on the same team. And moment by moment, instead of me relying on my old ingrained either withdrawal or clinging or worrying or um, whatever uh, behaviors that helped me survive my childhood, I'm not going to go to them. I'm going to uh, find you, ask you what you need right now, and I'm going to collaborate with you with you. So um, that's tonight's talk. And I'd like to do a meditation now where we practice uh, looking past the expectations and projections that we place on people and to practice that um, willingness to see what is really beneath people's exterior presentation and the willingness to feel safe to really uh, connect and find out what another human being's internal experience is. So uh, thank you for listening. I hope that tonight's talk was in some way worth your attention. And what I invite you to do is to find a really relaxing um, place where you're not looking at the screen. You're definitely not looking at me. (laughs) And you're allowing yourself to close your eyes. Or if you are looking at something, you're looking at something that's relaxing and soothing, that's stationary. But I'm going to give suggested uh, practice tips as if you're closing your eyes. So when we do close our eyes, we bring our awareness to some area in the body that feels safe to land in. And that's generally an area of the body, our internal sensations that feel both spacious and not too tense, that feels welcoming or at least like an area where our attention can um, abide without feeling too uh, impinged upon without feeling that there's too much going on. A place in the body that feels stable, 
So for me, I very often, if my, I'm lucky in that very often my belly does feel relaxed after years of practice. For many people, their bellies are, their abdomens are invariably tight. And if that's the case, I'd find another region. But if your belly is, if your abdominal muscles are relaxed and you have that uh, Buddha belly going on, as they call it, it's a good place to land because there's certainly a lot of space. For some people, the heart center, if you want to put a hand on your heart center and feel the warmth, and that might make the heart center a good place to land. For some people, it's the eyes, or even another place in the head. But try to find actual sensations to rest your attention on, not a vague sense of my head, my torso. And for now, the practice is to, one, just note to yourself or your inner child or the part of yourself that always feels it has to do something to be good enough, to just remind yourself that it's not only healthy, but it's essential at times that we just return with comfort and ease to the present without any need to prove ourselves, to accomplish anything, to do anything, to just safely abide in our present experience. If we have a capability of cultivating a soothing internal experience will always have a place to return to, to regroup, to process feelings, and then a ground upon which we can turn towards our partners or the people in our lives in a place that's not yielding to those old survive at all costs but don't care about others' impulses. It's by returning to the body that we feel whatever is going on. We can use the breath to incline ourselves to a greater state of 
safety simply by taking a full breath and then extending the out breath, by softening the belly, by dropping the shoulders away from the ears, by cultivating an unforced but comfortable facial expression, by soothing the eyes so that they're not jumping about, and most of all, by keeping the attention grounded on one set of sensations, we begin to self-soothe. And from self-soothing, we can connect with others. So for a little while, let's just practice staying here. If it's really difficult to find soothing entirely within, you can also bring in sounds from your environment that can help the mind settle sometimes. If your mind wanders away, just remind yourself that that means that you're really safe because if your mind does wander away from the present it means that there's no threats around you your mind your brain would never let you do that if you were truly endangered so it's probably because you're in a safe environment that your mind wants to wander away and get lost and uh, worrying about the future or rehashing the past or planning. But if we really want to develop a restorative practice that helps us be resilient in life, we insist very firmly but without any self-judgment on coming back again and again and again and just resting in the present. So let's do that for a little while.
So at this point, I invite you to bring to mind someone who is important to you. An individual who matters. But has recently in some way disappointed or frustrated you feel let down by it might not be recent but just some incident where you felt not prioritized where you wanted to connect perhaps and they were unavailable didn't respond or perhaps on the other hand gave you all kinds of unwanted advice tried to unduly pressure you to act in a way that was not conducive. Let me just bring somebody to mind. And as you hold or reflect on them, just ask first, what is it I immediately believe? What are my old perceptions, what kind of story always pops to mind when this happens? Is it my first assumption that they just don't really care, that I'm not important to them, or that they don't really value my needs, or that is it maybe an instinct to just cut them out or to to give up. It's important to know what our old, what the Buddha called anusayas, those early perceptions, those fast perceptions and beliefs that come up almost in an instant when we're under stress or we feel disappointed. And now just as an exercise to give us a different way, a different possibility, bring to mind a time in your life when you couldn't show up for someone, even though they might have reached out, you were just overwhelmed, overly busy, 
and you felt yourself not uh, responding perhaps as quickly as they wanted, or maybe a time where you gave unwanted advice, see if you can find some corresponding act that we've done under stress that's in some way similar to what the important person has done that we feel harmed by. If we feel that they've not been trustworthy or true, then just bring the time that we were not trustworthy. And then let's ask ourselves, in this time where I came up short, or I wasn't available, or I was too impatient, what was my intention? Was I really trying to, did I really not care about them? Or was I simply overwhelmed by life? Was my intention to do them harm, or was I simply uh, too overwhelmed by responsibilities? Or maybe I simply forgot, but didn't want to cause them any harm. So whatever we believe was the contributing factor for the times in life we haven't been able to show up for others or have acted in ways that are mildly inconsiderate, can we expand that wisdom to or that insight to the people that have let us down? Can we assume that they too were simply overwhelmed stressed out, forgetful, and that none of, nothing they did was specifically to us. It didn't mean they didn't care or that they were trying to push us away necessarily. And can we extend the forgiveness we would offer ourselves to them as well.
So at this point, I'd like to thank you for your practice and welcome you back to 